Hey, it's Rebecca. You can hear new episodes of No Limits on TuneIn four days before anywhere else. I've raised more money right now than any other woman in the United States. And in order to do that against all of the odds, I've had to be confident and I've had to be a growing leader and I've had to be aggressive. I encourage not only all women, but I encourage all women and men who want something for their lives to be aggressive. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, what if someone told you that 10 or 15 years from now, closets would be a thing of the past? You're about to hear how Jen Hyman, Rent the Runway's co-founder and CEO, just might be making that a reality. Okay, Let's Jen Hyman, welcome to No Limits. Hi. I'm, I'm so excited to have you here with us. Co-founder, CEO of Rent the Runway, you have this dramatic success story eight years in now, right? Yes. Does it feel like eight years? It feels both like five seconds and 50 years all at the same time. (laughs) You have 1,200 employees or something like that at this point? Yes. Let's go back to the early stages of everything. Did you as a kid envision yourself being a founder? Absolutely not. What was your dream job? You didn't know what that meant. I actually wanted to be a wedding singer. (laughs) No way. I really did. I've wanted to like, (laughs) you know, be in backup for a Motown band or a wedding singer, potentially a Nick City dancer, (laughs) all things that I actually still aspire to do. I think you could do all of them if you put your mind to it. I will try. Uh, I someone out there needs to have a wedding so Jen can come and sing. Would you? What would be oh, your song? Oh, I sang song at choice? my own wedding. You say what song did you sing at your I own wedding? I sang a Motown medley with my dad, as opposed to doing a father daughter dance. That is outstanding. Congratulations, by the way, Mazel Tov. You're re- recently married. Yes. Uh, so there's there's so much to get to here. So you think you're gonna be? You want to be? You dream of being a dancer or a wedding singer? What puts you on the path to business? What was the turning point? I think the turning point was joining the Harvard Crimson and becoming a reporter as an undergrad. Because if you're a journalist, you actually have to be not not that college kids are journalists, but if you're pretending to be a journalist in college, you have to be an observer of culture, an observer of other people, and you have to be someone who listens more than you speak. And I think that the sort of beat that I was on in college was about observing the culture of Harvard. And I ended up becoming the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Crimson Magazine, which at the time was the magazine that talked about things like the rise of ecstasy on campus or gender uh, problems at the final clubs on Harvard at Harvard campus or what beauty standards were on campus. So things that were larger themes that were happening in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I kind of brought that same mentality when I got my first job. I brought that same mentality of thinking about trends and pop culture to work. 
and being able to interpret that for how could we utilize that sort of sociological perspective on the world to help the business. The first job was Starwood. Yes. Did you apply at any point to journalism jobs, considering everything at Harvard? I actually spent every summer in college working in journalism. I worked first, uh, I wrote a tour book to Spain, like a budget travel guide. And then I worked for two summers at CBS News and actually worked at CBS News the summer of 2001. And I stopped working that summer around September 6th or 7th Mm. because Harvard went back to school late. And of course, the September 11th attacks were just a few days later. And I actually had remembered what we were covering and the work that the whole newsroom was doing the summer of 2001. And it was quite sensationalistic. It was all about Chandra Levy and shark attacks. And I became disillusioned at the time that newsrooms were becoming places where people were trying to make money as opposed to serve a public good. And in the wake of such a tragedy, you know, I immediately was like, I I can't do this, or at least I can't do this right now, and instead just decided to interview for jobs in business. So it was total fate of circumstance that I ended up even taking a job in business. That is so interesting. So you, you go to Starwood. You are working there. It's your very first job out of college, and you have an idea. I had an idea that Uh, We had entered, and I actually called it at the time, the experience economy, where people were getting married later. They therefore owned a lot of stuff already, and their values were changing. They were starting to value experiences over ownership, and one of those experiences was travel. So I thought about the fact that Starwood didn't have a program to recognize customers from the time they got engaged to the time they took their honeymoon, which was a time where you spend a lot of money in hotels. A lot of people get married in hotels. You obviously take a honeymoon to a hotel. And one of the ideas that I had at the time was to launch the first honeymoon registry in the world. So at the time, there were registries from companies like Crate and Barrel and Williams-Sonoma and Bloomingdale's where you could register for pots and pans. But I thought that a couple who already, you know, was getting married in their late 20s or in their 30s, they might already own pots and pans. (laughs) And perhaps they'd want their guests to contribute to their trip to Italy or their trip to, you know, Bora Bora. There have already been enough trips to Ikea. So let's go somewhere else now. Exactly. So that was fun. I came up with this idea. I asked the president of Starwood for $2 million to yeah, start nothing, it. No, no big deal. You just, as an early employee in your early stages of your career, marched into the... How did you get the meeting with the president? I had a great relationship with the SVP of Starwood Preferred Guest at the time, and he, I think encouraged the president to take a quick meeting with me. And how did the meeting go? The meeting was, I think it went great. Because did I you walked, bring slides, PowerPoint? I brought only two or three slides. It was mostly me pitching this idea. And because I didn't really have that much data to back myself <laughs> up. I had a thesis, but like no hardline evidence behind that thesis. And it was mostly just me talking passionately about this. And I think that he was entertained by my level of passion and 
desire to do this? And his response was, yeah, yeah, whatever. Sure. And I really took that as a yes. <laughs> you listened to the yeah part. Uh, yeah, exactly. He didn't say no. <laughs> so I decided to proceed. And, you know, I turned it into something that was a real business for Starwood that's still around today. And of course, with the collaboration with hundreds of other people from the company and and looking back on this experience, the most impressive part of it to me, because if I'm evaluating my behavior as a 22 year old, I'm most impressed by the fact that I somehow influenced hundreds of other people throughout the organization who were not gold against this program to help me. Well, how way. do you think you did that? What do you think the, the turning point was? I think it was by nature of just being social and building relationships and friendships with those people around the world, understanding that at work, it's never about the idea or the brilliance of the idea. It's about execution. And execution only happens in a team. And people only work on things when they like you and they like the other people they're working with. So... I think I developed a lot of fantastic friendships and relationships at Starwood, many of which I still hold today, almost 15 years later. Actually, my best friend is the person that I sat next to at Starwood on my first day at the company. My husband is the person I sat next to on my first job. That's amazing. (laughs) So just the importance of friendship in any job, especially related to business, it just can't be understated. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious, did you, in terms of orchestrating those relationships, was it sending out emails and looking through the directory or how did you how did you start there? Did you just go to company mixers? Um, well, Starwood had a lunchroom at the time and we were in a corporate office in White Plains, New York. So we all, first of all, or a huge group of people from the company would take the train to White Plains from the city every morning. So you had a good hour and a half commute time in the morning. You had lunch and an hour and a half commute time at night. And I think I spent those times socializing with as many people from the organization as I could, who were in all different departments. Because if you have one advocate in every department, it helps to really smooth the transition. So, okay, you're at Starwood, you're doing well, you're building this new thing, you have buy-in. What, what is, why go to business school at this point? I think that I decided to apply to business school just because I'd always been someone who was on a track I worked really hard in high school and got into Harvard undergrad. I worked hard at Harvard undergrad and got the very best job that I could after college. I even thought that I should go to business school. I think that I already assumed that I would go to business school when I was in college. Hmm. Like when I decided to take a job in business after kind of saying that I wasn't going to be a journalist, I thought, oh, of course, I'll work for a few years and then I'll go to business school. Now, part of that is because both of my parents had gone to business school. I had seen that it was just a route, the next step. And and I think looking back, that's not a way to think about your life and not a way to think about your career. And in fact, a lot of people who stay on that track don't end up finding or pursuing happiness in their career. I was very lucky that I stumbled into working on Rent the Runway and pursuing this big passion I have to 
you know, make women feel incredible about themselves every day. But there's an element of luck that I even kind of got off the track and decided to pursue this path. And still today as a, you know, woman in my mid 30s, a lot of my friends are still on that same track that they got onto when they were 18. And now questioning it? And now questioning it and not having as much fun as they might be having if they were pursuing the thing that they were really passionate about. That is a really interesting point. I think the question is, and and maybe you can weigh in on this, the question is, so if you reach that point where you realize you've been on this path and you never really took a step back to ask yourself what you actually wanted... How do you make the space to have that conversation with yourself? And how do you get to your answer? And how do you take the brave step to even try something else? The problem with the track and the problem with... um, It can be very successful on the the surface. The problem with smart people is that smart people sometimes will have success no matter where they go. So I have a lot of friends, for instance, who got on the track of finance in 2002 when we graduated from college. And 15 years later, they're still on that track. And they're extremely successful. They're not happy, but they're very successful. And success sometimes um, is a green light for people where they sometimes correlate that with happiness or they think, oh, because I'm successful, this is the right path for me or the right route. And I just think that that's not sustainable over a 50-year career. Very good point. So you're at Harvard Business School. You meet your co-founder, Jenny Fleiss. Yes, thank God for that. How... So I've heard the story before, the Diane von Furstenberg story, but you got to tell the Diane von Furstenberg story. So the two of you, you and Jenny, have this idea. We have an idea. We decide to cold email Diane von Furstenberg, <laughs> and we are we're lucky enough to hear back from her that day. And in her email, it was a one-sentence reply. It said, I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. And we drove down from Boston, put on DVF dresses, and walked into her office, and I introduced myself as the co-founder of Rent the Runway. And this was a full kind of two days after having the initial idea for Rent the Runway. So clearly, we didn't really know what this was. It wasn't a business. It wasn't even a fully-fledged idea. We were kind of working out what it was with her. What was important about the meeting is I heard everything she disliked about the idea. Mm. And we really took that to heart. And we developed an understanding of some of the problems that designers were having at the time. This was in late 2008. And a lot of those problems actually have even gotten worse over the past eight or nine years as The major vendors for brands, department stores, have seen declining sales. The retail industry has been constricting over that period of time. So I understand, you know, if not for that meeting with Diane, I wouldn't have thought about the fact that designers were having problems with customer acquisition, that younger women were choosing fast fashion over designer fashion, and thinking about how my company, Rent the Runway, or at that point, just my random idea, could be something that not only served the customer, but served the fashion industry as well. You take this idea, you leave her office, 
then what? How does it go from there to the full-fledged Rent the Runway? Well, Jenny and I basically were having so much fun thinking about this and working on this that we ended up spending the majority of our time at business school working on Rent the Runway to the extent that we organized our classes so that Wednesdays through Sundays we were in New York City. And we would just have meetings with whoever would be willing to speak with us about the idea. So we went kind of there were three different paths that we were pursuing at the exact same time. We were pursuing a path of meeting with anyone we could in the fashion industry. It included retail executives, designers, PR people, stylists, anyone who was connected with the fashion industry. We then pursued a path of testing this out with consumers and understanding, will women rent? What happens when they rent the dress? Do they ruin it? What designers do they want to rent? Is a designer brand important? What price will they pay? Will you be able to send a dress through the mail? So there was the entire minimum viable product um, iteration with consumers. And then there was a third route of, okay, can we incorporate as a company Can we create a legal agreement between myself and my co-founder? Can we raise venture capital funding? Because we knew that venture capital was important for us specifically because if you want to launch a uh, rental business of designer clothing, you need money to buy designer clothing. On the venture capital side, as you know, the statistics are terrible for women. Four to five percent of venture capital money is going to women, just four to five percent. When you walked into those initial meetings, what was your strike rate and and what do you think it is that got the VCs that did end up funding you interested in funding you? Well, we walked in with a lot of preparation, with a lot of confidence in ourselves and our vision, but without a lot of data. And what I mean by that is we didn't have a lot of data about our own careers and credibility. I had only worked for five years prior to going to business school, and my co-founder had only worked for two. So there were dings against us in terms of not only are we women, but also it's not like we've ever worked in start, you know, in the tech industry or in companies that a lot of venture capitalists respect. You didn't have an engineering background. No, we didn't have an engineering background, and we've had to learn a lot on the fly over the past eight or nine years in lots of different areas where we didn't have experience. I think that I give a lot of credit to my first investors, Bain Capital, and particularly to my lead director and investor, Scott Friend, because he saw that we really understood the consumer. And if you speak to him about why he invested, he will tell you that he thought that by writing us a check for $1.75 million, which he did, that even if the Rent the Runway idea didn't work, that we would take that money and turn it into something, that we would provide him a return because he thought that both myself and my co-founder were aggressive, he thought we were ambitious, and he thought we had vision. And that those three qualities together, he thought, would end up being something positive. Those personality traits that you just mentioned, they can be, and you've seen the research behind this, they can be actually, on the flip side, quite detrimental to women. Um, Being perceived as aggressive as a woman, for example. 
can actually negatively impact women. Did you come up against that? I think that it's certainly true, the research, that the more senior a woman gets, the less she is liked. The more she advocates for herself, the more you think that she's self-centered and you associate these negative characteristics with women. But on the flip side, there's no other way to get what you want, not just in business, but in life. Like, how are you supposed to find the person of your dreams to have a life with and and get married if you're not aggressive about pursuing that? Like, there are lucky people where amazing things just happen to them. But for the 99% of the rest of us, you have to put in some hard work. And to me, aggressiveness is just about being, um, it's just about putting in the hard work. So I really don't care about someone calling me aggressive. Of course I am. You know, I, I've raised more. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. I've raised more money right now than any other woman in the United States. I've raised $190 million. And in order to do that against all of the odds, I've had to be confident and I've had to be a growing leader and I've had to be aggressive. And I encourage not only all women, but I encourage all women and men who want something for their lives to be aggressive. Here, here. Couldn't agree with you more on that. You have spoken out about the fact that this has come with, there definitely have been some issues along the way. For example, one of the investors along the way, though, was sending you texts. Yes. Really inappropriate texts. Yes. And unfortunately, the issue of sexual harassment in not only the tech industry, but as I'm reading every day in the paper, in in a lot of industries, is just highly prevalent. And I was in a position at the time, at the time that I was sexually harassed, I was in the fortunate position of having already um, created a successful business, having momentum behind me, having a lot of supporters, both in terms of my board, in terms of the larger industry, in terms of my company. So I was not in a powerless position. I think that in a lot of cases, women who are sexually harassed are in a powerless position, and it can be paralyzing. And I can't imagine how I would have reacted if that had been at the very beginning of Rent the Runway, because there were real threats associated with my non-response to the sexually explicit messages I was getting. Right. So this this person was texting you sexually explicit messages and then not only was doing that, but was going around and telling people Jen isn't responsive. She's not she's not a good CEO. You should really figure out if she should be the one running the company because you were ignoring this. I was ignoring him and ignoring his uh his inappropriate communications. You had built up so much at this point, but did you at any moment in that time fear that this could be ultimately your undoing, that all the hard work, everything that you would put into this could be undone and this because of this whole experience? 
I didn't think that everything could be undone, but I thought it could have serious damage. And that it was hard enough. It's hard enough to build a company. Right. And to be an entrepreneur, it's hard enough to be a woman building a company. And then I was like, do I really want to add, you know, this whole other situation as well? So it certainly would have set me back 10 steps. To that point, not to say that any of these things should not be talked about. I absolutely believe that this should be out in the open. I'm an advocate for the truth. That's part of why I do the job that I do, because I'm always in pursuit of it. But I also sometimes wonder, as far as women, especially women in business, the disadvantage of we are having this conversation. This is taking up brain power. This is taking up time and energy. And if you're a guy and you're not having this conversation and the 30% of your time that that we are spending dealing with this and talking about it, you are spending purely on building out a business. Well, let's talk about this podcast as an example. Yes. Let's say you were here interviewing a male founder. We'd never have this conversation. We would never have this conversation. And they might use the 30 minutes of the podcast to talk about their business and how great it was and how you should give it a try and and the awesome new projects they're working on. Whereas in every single interview I do for any publication, about 50% of the content is related to being a woman in business. And that just takes up word count. Right. Or time, um, whereas we could be talking about Rent the Runway. Now, I understand it, and I want to do that. I want to advocate so that it is much easier for other women to get funded, to go after their dreams, to become an entrepreneur. Yes. And in fact, my co-founder and I, two years ago, because of this passion, started a foundation. We've raised millions of dollars for this foundation where we... Our goal is to help thousands of female entrepreneurs scale their businesses from being, you know, $100,000 businesses to being $100 million businesses plus and to give them the real tactical training that they need to move from the beginning to the next step. I, I could not agree with you more. And the reason I have the conversation at all here is because I want to talk about solutions and approaches that have been successful. And you clearly have found the way to be successful in spite of. And for me, it's really, it is a, it is a balancing act in my own mind about whether we go there or we don't. I don't want to ignore a problem that exists, but I also don't want to talk about it without having solutions on the table. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about what are proactive things that can be done to equalize the opportunities for women. And let's just speak about the world of entrepreneurship because that's the world I know the most. The terms, the legal terms that women are given early on in their business, I think are much worse on average than the legal terms that men are given. So for instance, we've been hearing in the media right now about this entire situation with Uber where Travis has kind of shares that are worth 10x the voting power of a single share. And we know that Travis has this and Mark Zuckerberg has this and many other male founders, Evan Spiegel at Snapchat has these shares. I've never heard of a single woman 
having shares that are worth 10x her voting power. You don't have that. I had to vi- I had to work to actually have a vote on my board. If you looked at my first term sheets of Rent the Runway, my co-founder and I, while we were on the board, our votes effectively didn't count. And my preferred shareholders held all of the control and sway as to what the future of the business was. So we were starting not even from a, you know, point zero, we were starting from like negative 50. And over the years, thank God Rent the Runway took off from the very beginning. And we've been able to negotiate in every subsequent round of funding more rights for ourselves. But all we've wanted was fair rights to what we would be offered as a male CEO or a male, you know, co-founding team. So what I would love to see is I'd love to see women, and I'm happy to be the first to do this, publicize, put online their first seed round term sheets and compare that with the seed round term sheets that men get. And the reason why I say seed round is because at the seed round, there's no evidence that any business is going to be successful. You're taking a bet on the founder itself. You're taking a bet on a person. So therefore, I want to understand what all of the parameters are that are put around that person. And I would, I clearly, beyond my own conversations with other women and men who are friends of mine, I don't have um, hardline data about this. So I don't have quantitative data, but I have qualitative data about it. And I think that it's true. So that's one tactical thing that could happen that women, it's like equal pay. So by the way, um, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you'd like to send this to me or to Jen, you can send this to either one of us and I will happily publish this information. I think that getting a plethora and what what's going to be the hardest is, I'm sure women will gladly Correct. Exactly. hand them over. It's like exactly. getting men to hand it over. Exactly. I, I know it's hard because these conversations, they're, they involve lawyers and they involve the VCs. But if you had to say for a woman out there who hasn't been through this process yet, or for any person out there who hasn't been through this process yet, what are the three things you must ask for and be certain is in that agreement? What would you say? Number one, I would say hire a lawyer at the very beginning. And when I say hire a lawyer, I mean hire a personal lawyer, not the lawyer who is representing your company. At the beginning of Rent the Runway, Jenny and I believed that our corporate counsel was clearly representing our interests as well because we were the company. When we were creating our first term sheet, there was no company. We hadn't even launched a business. It was Jenny and I and an idea. But there's a difference between the representation of the entity Rent the Runway and the entity Jennifer Hyman or Jennifer Fleiss. So it wasn't until much later that I hired a personal counsel. And I say this understanding full well that I didn't even have the money to hire personal counsel for the first few rounds of the business. So... In making sure that part of your initial term sheet negotiation is that the the amount you're raising can be used to pay for your personal counsel. So when I did hire personal counsel, they were able to give me data on their, you know, 30 years of working on 
term sheets on behalf of entrepreneurs, and they thought that my terms were pretty egregious. And based on what they had seen. Mm -hmm. And there were things that they picked up on and noticed that I clearly would never have been able to notice myself. So that is kind of the number one thing you can do. And I think that any lawyer who has experience in working with founders is probably a great, you know, that's about making an investment in yourself. The second thing that I would recommend is to build relationships and talk to male founders and to ask them what they received and what you should be advocating for. Making sure that you have voting ability. And that's crazy to me that, that they were trying to keep you from having that. There's often a feeling that the point of a negotiation is to get as much as humanly possible that you are a great negotiator if you're able to kind of swindle the other side out of as much as you can. And I think that when you're dealing with one side that has access to tons of information and another side, and what I, another side meaning founders who are first-time founders who don't really understand the industry, who don't understand the rights of entrepreneurs, who are coming in without access to that information. It's not a fair fight. It's not a fair conversation. And perhaps there should just be, we should be thinking about negotiations differently, that this is about setting up a business for success from the onset. It makes a lot of sense to me. Your third, you have a third idea. <laughs> I have, I have a million, lots of different tactics. But I think that the third thing I would say is that take money from people you love. Like my first investor is the most wonderful man and the most wonderful venture capitalist, I think, in the entire world. His name is Scott Friend. He's an unsung hero of the venture capital industry. He took a massive bet on me. And the terms that I received actually weren't even related to Scott Friend because when Scott decides to make the investment, he's the one he's not the one negotiating with me. It's his venture capital firm's lawyers who are negotiating. In fact, he didn't even see the final signed term sheet until it was signed. So it's not about an individual venture capitalist changing their behavior. It's about the institution changing their behavior and making sure that they're being equitable across founders, the law firm of that venture capital organization. But back to Scott and how amazing he is. We ended up taking money from him initially because we just got a great feeling whenever we were around him. He was always curious to learn more about our business. We knew that we loved spending time with him. We saw that he was a good person. We saw that he was engaged with helping us figure out answers to questions. And that's what a building a business is all about. It's about asking yourself millions of questions over time and figuring out iteratively what the answers are. So a check is not a check. A check is a person who you're going to be interacting with, hopefully, for the next few decades of your life. And I am so happy 
that I decided to work with people like Scott Friend and like Dan Nova, my Series A investor from Highland, who I think are unbelievable people in addition to being unbelievable investors. Great advice on institutional change. So it's funny that you talk about institutional change in that world because the idea for Rent the Runway truly had to think in terms of institutional change and how to make true, lasting institutional change. And now eight years later, when early on that idea with Diane von Furstenberg and others was a big question mark, now more and more women are doing this. Where the company is today, right now, you have the unlimited service. Mm -hmm. You've just launched a new program. Yes, we've launched a new subscription program called Update, which is only $89 a month. And you receive four items at a time for the month. And then you can get a new four items the following month. So how I do the math is that you're getting four designer pieces of clothing for that month for $22 each. The average woman throws away 82 pounds of clothing a year, wears just 20% of her wardrobe, and buys 64 items of clothing per year. Right. I think that the most important stat there is that you're only wearing 20% of what you buy. So the revolution that we're trying to usher in via Rent the Runway is this idea that you should continue buying that 20% of your closet that you actually wear. And for the other 80% of things that you want because they're fun and they're trendy and they're of the moment and they're colorful and they're cool, you can rent those things. And actually, we're going to provide via Rent the Runway a frictionless, easy way for you to put your closet on rotation and do it in an affordable way that saves you money. And for the rest, for the money that you save by nature of renting, perhaps you should use that money on a vacation, <laughs> going, going back to my days at Starwood, or saving that money for you know your kid's education or other things that are important to you in your life. Or taking a class for yourself to, to build yourself. Exactly. What's been for you the toughest lesson along the way? That's a great question because there have been so many tough lessons. I wouldn't call this a tough lesson, but I think the most important lesson that I've learned is the importance of hiring people who you can have a friendship with in addition to having a business relationship with. Building a company is a team sport. It is the most incredible experience of my life up until having a baby recently, which has fully matched and beaten the experience of, of building a company. But it's very similar to building a family in a sense, because you're working with people every day who you're spending your life with them. I spend more time at Rent the Runway than I spend with my husband, than I spend with my daughter. And I want to wake up in the morning and love the people that I'm working with. And that sounds fluffy, but when you love the people that you work with, you trust them. The velocity of innovation happens quicker. You just have more fun during the day. You laugh. Actually, you innovate more because more and more ideas get brought up because people feel comfortable bringing them up in a meeting. So figuring out very early on what is the culture of your organization and how are you going to hire for it, I think is 
something that I underestimated the importance of. And your culture has gone through some growing pains, or I don't know if it would be your culture, but the company itself. Well, I think one of the underspoken about um, things about growing a company or about entrepreneurship is that companies, as they grow and as they innovate, as they get bigger, that you often need different kinds of talent for different stages of a company growth. And that's for two reasons. The downside to it is sometimes people can't scale from an early stage company to a mid-stage company to a larger company. But sometimes it's just that people enjoy working in one stage of the business more then they enjoy working in another stage. So what does that mean? It means there are some people who like working on a team of 20 people more than 1,200 people and all power to them. So therefore, in Silicon Valley right now, the average length of tenure at a company is around 18 months, which is very short. And at Rent the Runway, you know, our average length of tenure in the company is over four years. Wow. So people are staying at the company for long periods of time. They're building their careers with us. And it's the CEO and the leadership's team's responsibility to help people scale as much as we humanly can, to help ourselves scale by nature of taking feedback, growing and adapting. Understanding that when people aren't scaling, you have to let them go and you have to do it in as kind a way as humanly possible. And that some people are going to want to leave because they prefer to work in a smaller environment. If you could go back and tell the Jen of her early stages of her career, pre-business school, first job, one piece of advice, what would it be? My piece of advice would actually be don't worry as much as you as much as you did about getting married. I was so getting married and having a family has always been the most important thing that I wanted in my life. It's always been the dream I've had for my life. I come from a really close family. I am the oldest of four kids. My family is by far the most important thing in my life. And I was always worried as a younger woman that if I attained success in my career, that that would prevent me from getting married and having kids. And I was consumed by this. And in fact, I would often look upwards in an organization and see lots of single women, and it would terrify me. And it would be in my mind that perhaps my career choices were going to have this negative effect on my personal life. And the reality of my life has not, has not been that. I kind of created this fear when it was an unfounded fear. Perhaps it, it did... Um, hurt women in generations before me. But I think that I spent a lot of time worrying about this when I should have just been having fun and focused on having a career. I took dating too seriously when I was in my 20s, when I should have just been like having fun and thinking that all of the crazy New York dates I was going on were ridiculous and funny, <laughs> as opposed to like, 
thinking that, oh, my God, this potentially is the person that I'm going to marry. Did you ever tell any of your dates that, by the way, that they were potentially the person you were going to marry? I mean, I say a little bit too much, so probably I did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What is the worst advice you've received along the way? I think the worst advice I've ever received is to shut up because you're a girl and that you should be polite and sweet and sit in the background. There's still a theme that runs through business that in order to be liked as a woman, you have to act a certain way, be a certain level of sweetness, be a certain level of your tone of voice has to be a certain way. And that message is promoted not just by men, it's promoted a lot of the times by women. The person who gave me this quote-unquote feedback was a woman. So I would encourage women, first of all, when you hear feedback like that, to not listen to it, to ignore it, to question the messenger, and to understand that there is a diversity of personality types that are accepted now and that if you try to change who you are, you're never going to be happy and you're never going to be successful. It's unsustainable to come in to work every single day and act in a way that is not organic to who you actually are. As a leader, what's more important to you to be respected or liked? To be respected. I think that we grow up in a society which is so important where the value set is all around being liked. If you think about our culture of social media, it's about how many likes did this post get? And we're curating our lives for likes for other people. In fact, basically all of junior high school and high school and college is an exercise in cultivating popularity for many of us. I know that to a certain respect, it was for me. I I was very focused on my social life in college and and walked away with a lot of friends. Um, I think that that philosophy that is ingrained into us as children, and now even more so because of social media, is a huge detriment for people's careers. Because as you become a leader and as you scale up, you're not not all of your decisions are going to be liked all the time and you have to feel comfortable with that and you have to understand that the diversity of opinion is actually important it's important for me to hear from team members of rent the runway who don't like certain decisions that i'm making because it enables me to question the decision, it enables me to think, and it actually leads to better outcomes going forward. Jen Hyman, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I always love joining you, Rebecca. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Abby Wallach. She is the executive producer and co-founder of Scent Invent Technologies. Abby is based in Scarsdale, New York, where she lives with her husband and three sons. She describes herself as a serial entrepreneur. She's held executive positions at Showtime and Niederlander Television and Film. She's also the co-founder of BeautifulStranger.tv, which 
which is an online media brand that connects content and commerce. And with her latest venture, Sentinvent Technologies, she and her co-founder, Caroline Fabregas, are looking to bring new innovation to the fragrance world. She says the major turning point in her career was launching Beautiful Stranger TV because it gave her the opportunity to produce content that she believed audiences would love and also build a media tech digital business from the ground up. She says her game-changing decision was to tell her story as an entrepreneur in front of the camera rather than staying behind the scenes. She says this happened organically after Sentinvent Technologies launched their product, Linger Fragrance Primer. She started utilizing social media to take people on the journey from manufacturing to their HSN on-air debut. People love to see behind the scenes. They love to see a good story. If she could go back and give herself advice at the start, she says she would try to prioritize better as the most valuable asset any entrepreneur has is their time. This is actually something Carolyn Everson, Facebook's VP of Global Marketing Solutions, said recently here on No Limits. Ruthless prioritization and knowing time is your best asset. That's what she said. That's what happens inside of Facebook. Abby, congratulations on being our No Limits Entrepreneur this week. Keep up the great work. We're so proud of you. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, send your nominations to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. That is No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. And keep it coming because I love hearing from all of you reading those emails. I love reading your stories and hearing about your game changing moments and all the advice you would give yourself. There's so much value in all of this information. And I think what we're hearing from more and more listeners is that they love hearing these stories too, because they're really inspiring. As always, you can follow along on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm at Rebecca Jarvis at all of them. And you can obviously use that hashtag no limits. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. It really does help others hear about the podcast. I also want to make sure that we shout out all the great people here at ABC who make this happen every week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, Annie Osakwe, who's on the team, and the rest of the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Hecht, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Steve Jones, Andrew Kelb, and a big thanks to ABC Radio that makes this happen. Have a great week, everyone. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.